Joshua chapter 13. We're just going to do three chapters tonight. So. That's the goal. There are a lot of names. Bear with me. We're going to get through them. And I'll do the best I can to, to pronounce them. I may mispronounce, so don't quote me on the names of the places and the people and all of that. But uh, this is still a, a fascinating section. We're just going to jump right in. Joshua chapter 13. Joshua 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. <laughs> Don't you love the honesty of God? You know, we, we dance around things. We're, we're careful not to offend. God just says it like it is. You're old. It's the deal, Joshua. And he says, And very much of the land remains to be Possessed. Now, I would have thought the Lord would say something like, Joshua, you are old and advanced in years. Time for a break. Time to retire. Time to settle in. You'd think the Lord would go another way. No, he says, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. You see, we talked about Sunday, the faith of mad dog Caleb. And I call him that because at 85, he's still got the fight. He's still got a dog in the fight. He still wants to go forward and deal with the giants. That's much of chapter 14, which we talked about on Sunday. But so is the will of God. See, Caleb's faith is in the Lord. Caleb's faith is to keep on fighting. And the Lord calls for us to keep on fighting. That retirement is not for this life. And I'm not talking about your job. I'm not talking about your career. I'm talking about our faith. We don't retire from faith. We don't get to a point in our lives where we're like, okay, I've done the Bible teaching, I've done the serving, I've been involved in the church, now it's time for me to sit back and let somebody else do it. It is not time for you to sit back and let somebody else do it until you're dead. Then feel free. But retirement spiritually is not for this life. The Bible says, Job chapter 30, verse 23, I know you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all the living. That's our retirement home. Romans 14, verse seven, Paul said, not one of us lives for himself. That's important. And not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And I like being the Lord's. Paul also said in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Hebrews 10.35, a couple of verses we've been over and over recently, do not throw away your confidence which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. When do you receive what was promised? After we're out of this place. Until then, we need endurance. By the way, he uses a word here. I looked up, I really liked it. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Confidence is literally bold speech. Don't stop speaking out. Don't throw away your boldness of, or, or, or your free speech, something that some in our country would like to do away with. Don't do away with your, or throw away your free speech, which has great reward. You keep talking about Jesus, and you keep sharing, and you keep speaking out your faith. Joshua is going to die at the age of 110, which we'll find out in chapter 24, verse 29. At this point, the beginning of chapter 13, when the Lord acknowledges that he is old, 
and advanced in years. He is at least as old as Kalev, who again is 85 in chapter 14. He's got to at least be in his mid-80s, maybe upper 90s, we don't know. But rather than give Joshua a gold retirement watch, the Lord gives him a new career. And beginning in verse in chapter 13, Joshua starts a whole new career in his life. It'll be his fourth. Review Joshua's careers. First, he was an attendant of Moses. The Bible tells us, Numbers 11, 28, from youth. So from a kid up, Joshua was Moses' servant, his attendant, there to do whatever Moses needed done. Joshua was, was on the spot. His second career was as a secret agent man sent into Canaan, right? One of the spies. His third career, and this overlapped much of the other two, he was commander of the IDF, the Israelite Defense Force. Commander Joshua, and we see that all the way through even the book of Joshua up until we get to this point, but now late in life, Joshua is going into real estate, verse two. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and those of the Geshurites. From Shahor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, and the Avite to the south. And all the land of the Canaanite and Meara that belongs to the Zidonians as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorite, and the land of the Gebelite, of, and all of Lebanon toward the east from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Lebohamat. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as Misrop Maim, all the Sidonians, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel, only allot it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. Joshua's commission now is threefold. First off, we saw the first part of the book, exterminate the evil. Secondly, subjugate the nations, those who are left. And finally, thirdly, allocate the land. Exterminate, subjugate, allocate. Now we're in the allocation section of the book, the real estate section, if you will. In fact, you could call chapters 13 through 21 Israel's closing documents because that's what we're about to read through. Ever sign those? Those of you who have bought a home or purchased property and you sat down in the title office and began to go through page after page after page of signatures. What's interesting, I remember buying my first house. I never thought I'd buy one, but Cheryl and I were afforded the opportunity back in California to buy a 60-year-old house, fixer-upper, and I remember going into the title office at that time, and I couldn't believe how many pages. We had to sign like 10 pages. The most recent home that, that we bought about 16, 17 years ago now, I, I think, what was it, 100 pages? And this is what mankind does. The, the further along we go, the more, especially in America, the more law we have to come up with because the more loopholes lawyers have found. So we need more pages to sign here and there and everywhere. It's crazy. Sign here, sign here, sign here. And by the way, no one reads that stuff. Do you, do you read through it? Okay, now see, Doug does, but that's the way he thinks. 
I'm just like, show me where to sign Crawford, 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 Crawford fast as I can. You may not read it. You're going to want to read this. So I want to encourage you, and this is super encouraging. It is remarkably edifying to begin with that while Joshua is the agent, note that God says, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel. Now, you're going to find throughout this, title documents, yes, closing documents, absolutely, but fascinating, even in all the names, and we're not even going to cover all of them. We'll move through a lot of them. If you, one of them catches your attention or your mind, go back and look it up. But this is so encouraging to me. God begins, and this is always the way it is with the Lord. He says, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel. I'll do the work, Joshua. It's like they said to Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? John 6, 28 and 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Why? Because him whom he has sent is the one who's gonna do the work. Your job is believe in him. Your job is trust him. Your job is accept the work that he has done for you. Why would God do this? Why would God send Israel in, give them this great task, but then say, I'll drive them out before the sons of Israel. Allot them the land, Joshua. I will drive out those who are in the way, who are before them. Why does God do that? Because God is gracious. Because this speaks of his character. And because it's not our deeds that keep the deed in trust. Our deeds can't keep the deed, so we trust the Lord to do it. I want you to hear something. This is uh, from the book of Ephesians. In fact, if you want to flip over there real fast, I want to read a few verses out of chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. To get a sense here of what it is that God does now in, in faith, now by faith, now what he's done spiritually for us to save us. But there's a parallel, I think, here between Ephesians 1 talking about well, spiritual closing documents and the closing documents of Israel that we're gonna come back and look at in just a moment. In Ephesians chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Stop right there. You could read that and say, so Paul's a Calvinist. Only Calvin came after Paul. But, you know, set that thought aside. Paul's a Calvinist. He's a, he's a predestinationist. I mean, he just said he predestined us to adoption as his sons. Understand here, us, as Paul writes, is Israel. And it's really important. I know it's New Testament, Ephesians. I know he's writing to the church at Ephesus, which is in Gentile territory. But at this point, in the opening salvo of his letter, he is talking about the Jewish people in love. He predestined us, Paul said. In fact, he even starts out saying, uh, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't God the Father of the 
church at Ephesus too? Yeah, but that's not what Paul's saying, at least not yet. Keep reading. In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption. We, Paul says, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And he's still talking about Israel. He's not talking about you and me. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is Jesus, with a view to an administration or organization suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is again, according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Who were the first to hope in Christ? Jews. Israel, not the nation, but Jewish people there in the land of Israel, in Judea, in Jerusalem. They were the first to believe Paul was one of the Jews among them. Now, you may hear me say that and go, okay, Rick, come on. This is to the, Christ, this is to the Gentile Christians, not yet. The first 12 verses are speaking of the inheritance of Israel, who God did predestine to be the chosen people. But then, then, Paul says in verse 13, in him you also, and there's the key, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The first 12 verses, he's talking about Israel and their predestined chosenness. And all of a sudden in verse 13, he says, and guess what? You too. You too, Gentile. You too, one-time outsider. You too are drawn into this marvelous chosenness. So we join Israel, and literally what Paul says, he calls them, he calls them God's redeemed possession. God's redeemed possession. We join that. We become that, his redeemed possession, which is to say that he bought us out of our foreclosure and secured us who trust in him because he is faithful. Now, with that in mind, go back to Joshua chapter 13. Because remember, all these things that we're reading about the children of Israel were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we're reading this with an eye to that. There's interpretation. These are Israel's closing documents. But there's application to us of the remarkable faithfulness of God. And faithfulness is a theme that just runs through all of this. Go back and look at verse 8, chapter 13. He says, With the other half-tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites, received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan to the east, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to them. And then he recounts this. From Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, with the city, which is in the middle of the valley, and all the plain of Medeba, as far as Debon, and all the cities of Sichon, the king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the border of the sons of Ammon, and Gilead and the ter territory of the Geshurites and the Meachathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan as far as Selachah, and all the kingdom of Og or Ug in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtarot and in, in, 
and in Adrai, he alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, for Moses struck them and dispossessed them. This is a reconfirmation here, and it's very orderly as we walk through these chapters. This is an orderly reconfirmation again of the territory of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. This is their real estate. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. It runs the eastern corridor of the Jordan River from Mount Hermon in the far north. In fact, Corey, go ahead and pull that slide up for me, will you? I'm gonna pause from the verses and just give a, a, a look at this. You can also look in the back of your Bibles. You may have a Bible map that looks like this as well. But if you look at the very top, you see Manasseh in kind of the pinkish color, right? Yeah. And up at the very tip top, Mount Hermon is that tiny little green triangle. Zidon is at the very top, that's, that's outside of the land. Mount Hermon is the largest mountain in Israel. It's huge, it's snow-capped, it's, it's a big mountain. And from that, that's the tip of Manasseh. If you follow it straight on down, you come to um, the waters of, of, oh, we saw it last week. It, it's the little, the little Galilee, we'll just call it, the little harp, and then the Jordan River splits right down the middle. Manasseh is on the right side there, the eastern shore, and then Gad, and then Reuben. In between Gad and Reuben, you see Ammon. Below Reuben, you see Moab. Jordan today is made up of Ammon, Ammon, Jordan, Moab, and Edom. That's the region that is now Jordan today. And so this is the region now that has been deeded over, given to, written down in God's word, in perpetuity, by the way, the inheritance of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Why do we keep hearing about these guys? I mean, how many times, I don't even know the number, but it's, it's been several times now where we read about and hear about the inheritance of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. And that Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh wanted to stay on that side of the Jordan and God allowed it and Moses gave them their territory there. Now we hear it again. Over and over we keep hearing about territory of these guys who didn't even want to go God's way. They went their way. They didn't even want to cross the Jordan. But we keep hearing about this territory that God granted them and allotted to them. Why? Because as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And every time you hear a restatement of the inheritance of any of the tribes of Israel, remember that God is faithful. What we see in this is repetition is reminder. Repetition as reminder, not just of the land, but of the faithfulness of God to see it through. And he promised them before the conquest seven years earlier, okay, you want this land, you can have it. But Moses says, but you gotta fight for your brothers first. Well, they did, and here's their land. And so it's being repeated again that they have this land just as God promised. He doesn't make a promise without following through. Now, if you say, well, he's made me some promises that haven't followed, haven't followed through on, well, maybe not yet. But he has never made a promise that he will not keep. Look at verse 13. But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Maacatites, for, for Geshur and Maacath live among Israel until this day. And that's a problem. 
In fact, you're going to see all the problems Israel's going to have in the land for decades, if not centuries to come, and all of their future problems and skirmishes and wars and battles and struggles are related to the fact that they did not possess all that God gave them. And it's the same for us today. When we don't possess the promises of God, it creates problems for us. When our faith only goes so far, we end up struggling because of it. The Lord says, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies for you, all that you are willing to possess. The more I possess, the more strength I have in the land of my life. The more victorious is my Christian living. Now, in verse 14, he says, only the tribe of Levi, moving on now from Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, the tribe of Levi, he did not give an inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as he spoke to them. And that is so beautiful. Well, that verse tells us, unique actually, when the inheritance of Levi is talked about, the way it's written there is so beautiful because what he's saying is, Levi's inheritance is worship. Levi's inheritance is the offering of sacrifice. Levi, that's what you get. You don't get land like Reuben Gad, half Manasseh over there on the eastern shores or any of the other tribes here now on the western shores. No, you get, you get worship. We see how this elevates worship in the eyes and the mind of God, how, how precious, how awesome it is to be able to do that. You get to be the ones offering up sacrifice by fire to the Lord. Levi, that's your inheritance. Why? Why do they get something so special? because they came to God's side at Mount Horeb. And you may recall that story, Exodus 32, 26, when Moses stood at the gate of the camp, he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Deuteronomy 18, verse two, says they shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Psalm 73, 27 says, for behold, those who are far from you Will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, as for me, David writes, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And so Levi got the, got the call to the temple, the call to the house of worship, the call to the place of sacrifice, to be gathered near and to come and offer their service at the tabernacle until the temple would later be built. And then at the temple, and I love that, that Levi gets this amazing inheritance. No, it's not land. It's life with the Father. It's the presence of God. Verse 15, so Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the sons of Reuben according to their families, and their territory was from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, with the city which is in the middle of the valley, and all the plain by Medeba, Heshbon, and all its cities which are on the plain, Debon and Bamat, Baal and Bet Baal Meon and Yahaz and Kedemot and Mephaat and Kiriatim and Sibma and Zeret Shahar on the hill of the valley and Bet Peor on the slopes of Pisgah. Mount Pisgah is the mountain that Moses would die on. And Bet Yeshemot, even all the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses struck with the chiefs of Midian, Evian and Rakem, Zur and Hur and Reba, the princes of Sihon who lived in the land, the sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner with the sword among the rest of their slain. 
So Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, Levi, and now we come to a point, and I want to stop right here just for a moment to point out to you in verse 22, the end of Balaam. Remember Balaam, that bloviating big mouth seer? Tried to curse Israel, but every time he opened his mouth, blessing came out. He couldn't curse Israel. This Balaam, the one whose donkey had more brains than he did. Balaam, who, who tried to, to get greedily get something out of, of those who are, you know, Moab was opposed to Israel and the Ammonites and, and see if he could get something for it. And so he tried to curse Israel, didn't work. And here his demise is repeated and it's important to note. And it's so important that Joshua writes it down here in chapter 13. It's written down in Numbers chapter 31, verse eight as well. So this is now the second time that we find out that Balaam is killed with the sword. So we know that he was taken out. He, he didn't get off scot-free. He gets taken out by Israel as they come into the land of Moab, and that's the end of Balaam. Listen, this is important to note and to remember Balaam because while he could not curse Israel, what he did do was devise a way for Moab and Ammon to compromise Israel. And this is the threat of Balaam. And it's so important that Balaam is mentioned again three more times in the New Testament, called out, dealt with as the poster boy of false prophets. You wanna know what a false prophet looks like? Look at Balaam. Look at what he did. That's how the false prophet works. This guy's a real wolf in sheep's clothing. And here's what the New Testament has to say about him, 2 Peter 2.15, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's the way of Balaam. And then Jude 11, speaking of false teachers, says, woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Third time in the New Testament, these verses are all up there. And Corey, you can go back to the verses anytime you want. Third time in the, in the New Testament, Balaam's called out is Revelation chapter two, verse 14, in the letter of Jesus to Pergamos, Pergamos, which means objectionable marriage. And Jesus says to that church, I have a few things against you because you have there, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So here are those three verses again. And let me tell you the, the single, the key word for each one. Balaam, the way of Balaam, 2 Peter 2.15, was rebellion. The way of, of, of Balaam is rebellion. The false teacher is rebellious to the truth of the Lord and to the Lord himself. In Jude 11, the error of Balaam was greed. He was in it for the money, to see what he could get out of it. And then in Revelation 2.14, the teaching of Balaam is compromise. Rebellion, greed, and compromise, this is always what drives false teachers. And compromise is perhaps, the, 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 in, my, in my opinion, it is the single greatest threat to the American church today, compromise. And we see it right and left. Churches, Christians, followers of Jesus, yet compromising with the Moabites and the Ammonites, with the enemy, compromising. And it's the infiltration of influence in two ways. And I hope I can get this across real clearly. There are two kinds of influence that are 
I see undermining the church today. One is the ear-tickling influence, and the other one is the watering-down-the-truth influence. The ear-tickling influence that we see all over the place, people just want to hear what they want to hear. I don't want to hear that. I, I want to hear what I want to hear. And we see this, and Jake even mentioned this today, and I, I, I agree with this. Right now, more, with the advent of YouTube, and we're on it too, but with the advent of YouTube, people are amassing teachers in accordance to their own desires like never before. Gone are the days where the Bible teaching you got was from your local church. Now are the days where the Bible teaching is from all over the place. How do you know where these people are even coming from? I mean, at least with me, you know where I live, you know? At least with me, hopefully, we have some history. And if you don't have a long history with me, there are people here who have. So at least you know something about the pastor who's teaching. Go online and you start picking off one right here. Oh, but they say this guy, oh, but this guy's fantastic. And all of a sudden, you got all these people that you're listening to and all these different ideas. And you know what's happening? We're getting emails right now from people who are confused by all that they're hearing. Of course you are. Of course you are. People are putting out all kinds of ideas. Be careful with the ear-tickling mentality. I, I'm wondering, you know, Lord willing and the saints don't rise, I'm wondering if we get to First Chronicles what attendance is going to look like. You know what? We need First Chronicles. We need every word out of the mouth of God. And so I, I encourage you in that, that the false teachers are out there and, and, and they play to the, to the ears of those who want to have their ears tickled, but they're also watering down truth. Let's make it easy. Let's make it palatable. Let's make it not so, not so stringent, not so exacting. Let's just water down the truth. Let me tell you, there is one way, one way, the best way, the only way, I think, to remove rebellion, greed, and compromise from the church, and it is the sword. It is the sword. Balaam, the son of Beor, was killed with the sword among the rest of their slain. Ephesians 6:17 tells us to take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Hebrews 4:12 for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I had a conversation today and I'm not going to call out who it was cuz he's here and I don't want Hank to be embarrassed. <laughs> Oops. We were talking about the Bible teaching at the bridge and, and talking about that we dive in and we have, you know, we'll have 35 verses on a Wednesday night and we, and we do the deep dive and we talk about the Hebrew and the Greek languages and all that stuff. And, and Hank was saying, how do, you, how do you, you know, it's just all that stuff. I can't possibly read the Bible and know all the stuff that you bring to us on a Sunday or a Wednesday. And I thought about that for a moment. I thought, you know, Here's the thing. Yes, you can. Yes, you can know all of this. Now, I have notes in front of me. I have been spending the last several days studying to prepare to bring this to you. But on top of that, the retention of God's word has a layering effect. Trust me on this, that every word you sit in Bible, every year that you sit under Bible teaching layers onto the year before it and then the next year layers on, and the next year layers on. You get two or three years into studying the word of God, and suddenly you're remembering things going, how in the world do I remember that? <laughs> you'll think of a verse and go, I think that's, and you'll turn and go, oh, I was right. How did I know that? Because you're in the word. 
because the word feeds the heart. As you feed on the word, it feeds you. And it, you will find this snowball effect. You want to be a Bible scholar? Just stay in the word. And you will, and you will have the retention and the understanding of all these things. Keep the sword with you. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We need the sword, and the sword will take out the false teaching. It will take out compromise and greed and rebellion from our lives. So good old Balaam, he was, he was taken out with the sword. Verse 23 the border of the sons of Reuben. And by the way, we're, we're still with that. Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh. Chapter 13 is dealing with them. The border of the sons of Reuben was the Jordan, Jordan River. This was the inheritance of the sons of Reuben according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Moses also gave an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the sons of Gad according to their families. By the way, one quick thing on verse 23. He closes out Reuben in the, in the list of the sons of Jacob, who was the firstborn? Reuben was. <clears throat> this will be important for Sunday study, so I'm giving you a heads up. Reuben's the firstborn. Does anyone know what the firstborn son normally got in terms of inheritance? It's a double portion. Firstborn got the double portion. Now, you say everything, and there's something to that as well, because the firstborn also now had the responsibility of the family, now had the authority of the father to care for and look after. There were any sisters. He took care of the sisters. If there was his mother still there, took care of the mother. Brothers, everybody came to the firstborn, but in terms of the actual inheritance, he got a double portion. Guess what? Reuben doesn't. He doesn't. He just gets a little portion, and, and the map will come back up in a minute. Don't put it up right now, Corey, but the map will come back up. And when it does, just take a peek at Reuben. Not a very big allotment of land. He's the firstborn. We'll talk about that problem and what happened a little bit on Sunday. Well, Gad now. Moses gave the inheritance to Gad. Verse 25, their territory is Hatzer. And all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the sons of Ammon, as far as a rower, which is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon, as far as Ramat Mizpah and Betonim, and from Mahanaim, as far as the border of Debir, and in the valley, Bet Haram, and Bet Nimrah, and Sukkot, and Zaphon, and the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, or Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as the border, again, the Jordan River, as far as the lower end of the Sea of Kinneret, remember that's the Galilee, Lake Kinneret, beyond the Jordan to the east. This is the inheritance of the sons of Gad, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. Interesting, this territory of the, of the sons of Ammon, so I talked about the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. I've mentioned this before. If you go to Jordan today and you talk to Jordanians, most Jordanians will say, I'm not really an, a Jordanian. Depending on what region of Jordan they live in, they'll say, no, no, I'm actually an Edomite. I'm actually a Moabite. I'm an Ammonite. That's, they still, to this day, think of Jordan as Ammon, Moab, and Edom, which is fascinating to me. But now Moses, verse 29, also gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for the half-tribe of the sons of Manasseh, according to their families. Their territory was from Mahanaim, 
all Bashan, all the kingdom of Ug, king of Bashan, all the towns of Yair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, also half of Gilead and Ashtaroth and Edrei, the cities of the kingdom of Ug in Bashan. I just like saying Ug, that's his name. By the way, that guy was huge. He was huge. The Bible talks about, and you can look this up another time, but when they buried him, his coffin was the size of a piano case. They describe his bed, and it's like nine feet by 10 feet. I mean, huge, and it was just for, just for Ug. So anyway, Ug, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Yair, verse 30, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, half of Gilead and Ashtarot and Edrad, cities of the kingdom of Ug in Bashan, were for the sons of Makir, the sons of Manasseh, and for half of the sons of Makir, according to their families. These are the territories which Moses apportioned for an inheritance in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho to the east. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance the Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. And that's the title deed and the closing documents of Reuben, Gad, half of Manasseh, and of Levi. And it's written right here, fascinating, this title deed was never rescinded. This has always been land that was allotted to Israel by the word of God, written down in the word of God, this should hold up in any court in the world. It's a legal document that God was sure to write out town by town, region by region, area by area, writing out the actual boundaries of the land to each particular tribe. And you've got it in your laps tonight. And here we are, 3,500 years later, we're looking at the title documents of Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, and of Levi. But remember again, Levi's real estate <laughs> is the house of the Lord and Yahweh himself. Kind of like God said that one time so long ago, Genesis 15, 1 to Abram, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. It's me, Abraham. It's me. So Abram, Abraham, only owned one tiny little plot of land, though all the promised land and the future was promised to him, he only owned one tiny spot, a cave, which I'll come back to in just a minute. But there's something else with Levi just to be reminded of that's amazing in these title documents. And as Levi's allotment is given, not only is their inheritance the Lord and the house of the Lord and the sacrifices of fire, but they are gonna be scattered now among all 12 tribes. They're gonna be given cities, not land, but cities, Levitical cities, and they're gonna be placed throughout all of Israel, which is, man, that's just brilliant because they're gonna be available. They're gonna to go to the temple or to the tabernacle for their time of service. But then they're back home in the city where they live. They're gonna be available to teach the law. They're gonna be available to pastor the people, to remind their fellow Israelites of the truest and best inheritance, which is Yahweh Elohim. Chapter 14, verse one. Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer, the priest, and Joshua, son of Nun, and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance by the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses for the nine tribes and the half tribes. So now we're getting, now we're crossing over the Jordan. 
Now we're in that area of the promised land and we're gonna deal with the rest of the tribes. And chapter 14 specifically will deal with Judah. Verse three, for Moses had given the inheritance of the two tribes and the half tribe beyond the Jordan, but he did not give them an inherit, or did not give an inheritance to the Levites among them. For the sons of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they did not give a portion to the Levites in the land except the cities to live in with their pasture lands for their livestock and for their property. Thus, the sons of Israel did as the Lord had commanded Moses and they divided the land. As we go through, you just, you gotta see how meticulous this is. City by city and region by region, God is just, he's not missing anything. He's making sure it's all written in, again, because the Lord has never made a promise he didn't, couldn't, or will not keep. He is a faithful God. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Anyone here not feeling entirely sanctified? Well, Paul prays that you will be and I will be and that your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Well, I haven't seen it. Faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. Yeah, but I just don't. Faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. Now, Judah steps up in verse six, and the rest of chapter 14 is Mag Dog's fighting, full faith, faithful fellowship and story. And that's what we talked about on Sunday. Okay, the rest of chapter 14, we covered that. Remember Caleb, Kalev, who also didn't, by the way, ask for a gold watch of retirement. All he wanted was giant bread. He just wanted to eat. And so we're gonna come back to Kalev in a minute, but he asks in the rest of chapter 14, give me the land of Hebron. Give me the hill country. Give me the giants. Because Caleb still has a dog in the fight. Now, skip down to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Now, in chapter 15, we continue with, with Judah. And Corey, why don't you put the, the map back up there one more time for me? Let me have him do it a couple of times just so you can keep peeking at it. And consider now, Judah, see Judah there in the yellow? Okay, that's Judah. Keep an eye on that and just listen as I read chapter 15, verse one. Now the lot for the tribe of the sons of Judah, according to their families, reached the border of Edom southward to the wilderness of Zin at the extreme south. Their south border was from the lower end of the Salt Sea. We call it the Dead Sea today from the bay that turns to the south. Then it proceeded southward to the ascent of Akrabim and continued to Zin, and then went up by the south of Kadesh Barnea, and continued to Hezron, Hebron, Hebron, and went up to Adar, and turned about to Karka. Verse four, it continued to Azmon, and proceeded to the brook of Egypt. And the border ended at the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea. This shall be your south border. The east border was the Salt Sea, as far as the mouth of the Jordan and the border of the north side was from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. Verse six, then the border went up to Bet Hogla and continued on the north of Bet Araba to the border which went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben, 
Verse 7, the border went up to Debir from the valley of Akor and turned northward toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south of the valley, and the border continued to the waters of En Shemesh, and it ended at En Rogel. Now, if you're just reading through all that, you're going, okay, name, 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 name means nothing to me. But when you see it on the map, there's Judah, and it's huge. Now, some of this is what they call the Negev, which is the desert region, the southern desert region of Israel, but this is a massive allotment of land to Judah. I want to remind you of something here, that the Valley of Accor is in this land. Remember the Valley of Accor? Accor meaning trouble. It comes from the same root as Achan, Achan, meaning troubler. And it's in the Valley of Accor, here in the allotment of Judah, the Valley of Accor where that troubler of Israel, Achan, and his family of likely accomplices met their, met their death. They were stoned to death. They were executed. And this is now in chapter 15, the last time in verse 7, where we see the Valley of Accor. We're not going to hear the Valley of Accor mentioned again until Isaiah 65:10. Let me remind you, where God says, Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks, and the Valley of Accor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. The valley of trouble is a resting place. Hosea chapter two, verse 15, we hear of it the last time in the Hebrew scriptures. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it's so beautiful because the faithful God has a long, long memory and it's amazing to me that the infamous valley of trouble was allotted to Judah through whom came the Messiah. And Messiah alone is the one to whom we can turn our troubles, exchange them, if you will, for rest and for a door of hope. John 10, verse seven, truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Leave the slide up just a bit longer, Corey. Verse eight. Then the border went up to the valley of Ben-Hanom, to the slope of the Jebusite on the south. That is Jerusalem, the Ben-Hanom, the Hanom Valley. We have another word for that. It's Gehenna. That's where Jesus gets that, the Hanom Valley from. And the border went up to the top of the mountain, which is before the valley of Hanom, to the west which is the end of the valley of Rephaim toward the east, or, or toward the north, sorry, verse nine. From the top of the mountain, the border curved to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and proceeded to the cities of Mount Ephron. That is the border curved to Baala, which is Kiriath-Jerim. The border, verse 10, turned about from Baala westward to Mount Seir and continued to the slope of Mount Jerim on the north, that is Chesalon, and went down to Bet Shemesh and continued through Timnah. The border proceeded to the side of Ekron northward, and then the border curved to Shikaron and continued to Mount Baala and proceeded to Jabneel, and the border ended at the sea. The west border was the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, even its coastline. This is the border around the sons of Judah according to their families. So that's all of Judah. The south, at least, the south and western borders of the land of Judah. If you notice looking at it, Judah swallows up Shimon or Simeon. 
So Simeon's going to get their allotment of land, but they are in the midst of Judah. They are surrounded by Judah, which is honestly not a bad place to be. It's a safe place to be. And notice that Judah is going to share with, can you even see it? Tiny little Benjamin. In fact, on the map, all Benjamin gets is binge. <laughs> so they're at the very top there of Judah where Jebus is. Jebus is Jerusalem. And then tiny Benjamin. Now that's important. Benjamin, Judah, and at least a large part of Simeon, Shimon, which is encompassed by Judah, that will make up the southern kingdom. So ultimately, when the kingdom divides after Solomon, it's going to divide north and south, 10 northern tribes, and then they say the two southern tribes, but Shimon is still a part of that, and that's going to be the kingdom of Judah. So we get the south and the western borders of all of this. What's interesting is also here in Judah, Judah the tribe through whom Messiah will come, Judah is the tribe that shares with Benjamin the most important city in all of the history of Israel, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's mentioned in the Old Testament 673 times. It's mentioned in the New Testament 144 times. Put it all together. And by the way, that's just the name Jerusalem. I'm not even adding in when it was called Salem, when it's called the mountain of the hill of the Lord, when it's called Mount Zion, when it's called the mountain of the house of the Lord. All these different names for it multiple times. But if we just look up Jerusalem, 673 times in the Hebrew scriptures, 144 times in the New Testament for a total of 817 times. Guess how many times it's listed in the Quran? Zero. Not once. And yet we see this battle for Jerusalem. The, the Muslims want Jerusalem as their, you know, the Palestinians want it for their capital. But, but Muslim people say, it's our third most holy city. So it's important to us. Why is it so important to them when it's not even mentioned in the Quran? Because Satan wants to go head to head with that which is most important to God. And that's why this battle to this day, the issue of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and all of the fighting that we see going on in the Middle East, it comes down to that very simple truth that Satan is opposed to God. And he will do everything he can to undermine what belongs to God. And of all Israel, the land which is God's, Jerusalem is the place where he put his name. This is his city. And it's interesting to me, again, that it is specifically named in Judah's title deed. Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. When David wrote that, he wrote it from his own heart. It's the joy of the whole earth. Well, it was to David. But it's also prophetic because the day is coming, my friends, don't forget this, when Jerusalem will be the joy of the whole earth. Regardless of what happens on November 2nd, the day is coming when Jerusalem will be the joy of the whole earth because Jesus Christ will rule and reign from there. And that day is not far off. Ezekiel chapter five, verse five, thus says the Lord of God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. And Isaiah chapter two, verse one, just listen to this. Isaiah verse two, he spoke uh, what he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It will come about 
that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. This is gonna be an uphill stream. We will all stream to Jerusalem and many peoples will come and go and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And I can't wait to go sit at that Bible study. Can you even imagine Hey, time to go up to Jerusalem. And we all go up and we have a seat on our little kindergarten squares. You know, we'll sit down together and cross our legs and Jesus will pass out milk and cookies and then he will teach us. And we just get to sit and listen to Jesus expound the truths of perhaps all that happened in in history. Maybe he'll do with us at some point like he did with the, the men on the road to Emmaus and open up all the passages of scripture and we'll just sit back blown away and you know, Hank's gonna elbow me and go, Rick, you never told us that. I'm like, I never knew. It'll be amazing when Jesus is our teacher. Now, we're still talking Judah. And remember, as we said Sunday, Caleb, Caleb is from Judah. He is of the tribe of Judah. And so he comes back into the story again, Caleb at Kiriat Arba, If you look at verse 13, and Corey, I think you can go back to the verse slide at least for a bit. Verse 13, or or verse, yeah, verse 13. Now he gave to Caleb, the son of Yephunah, a portion among the sons of Judah according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriat Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. I told you Sunday, but let, let me repeat this. It's important to what I'm about to say. Kiriat. Kiriat means city. You'll see in a moment, Kiriat Sefer. Sefer means book, so city of the book. Kiriat Arba is the city of Arba. But Arba in the Hebrew also means large and loud. The city of the large and loud. But here's what I didn't tell you on Sunday. See, I saved some things just for you. Arba in the Hebrew has another meaning to it. It means four. Four city of the four. And it's thought that it was called city of the four. And that was the previous name before it got changed to Hebron. It was the city of the four, the city of Arba, city of the large, city of the loud, city of the four. And it's thought perhaps because of the four notorious giants who lived there. Verse 14, Kalev drove out from there the three sons of Anak. So there's Anak himself. And then there's Shishai and Achiman and Talmai. Their names mean noble, gift, and furrowed. I think that's interesting. I don't know why I think that's interesting. Noble, noble, firstborn son, which, which would be uh, Shishai. And gift is Ahiman, secondborn son. And along comes the thirdborn son, and he's Talmai, and his name just means furrowed, maybe because he's the thirdborn son. He's like, I'm not a gift and I'm not noble, I'm just furrowed. Anyway, I don't know what the deal is there, but you've got four notorious giants of Hebron. When it wasn't called Hebron, when it was Kiriat Arba, and Arba, again, is the number four. But but let's stay in Hebron a second. As we saw on Sunday, Kiriat Arba, city of the large and loud, city of the four, was renamed Hebron, meaning fellowship. Hebron is anything but a city of fellowship right now. 
Now, I've told this story before, but Cheryl and I were in Israel for a conference. We were really blessed to go there. It was about a week that we just ripped over there. We were at a Joel Rosenberg conference in Jerusalem. It was fascinating. And then we were able, we had a, a, an off day from the conference, but it was also an off day for us because we left our hotel and we left our passports in the hotel and that was not wise. We crossed the security barrier into Palestinian territory without our passports. We traveled down to Hebron without our passports. And when we came back up, and it's a whole different story I'm not gonna get into tonight, but they almost didn't let us back in to, to Israel proper. We're on the, you know, the, the so-called West Bank. We're in Palestinian territory. And they didn't wanna let us in because we didn't have any proof of who we even were. I might as well tell you the story. So we're sitting in the... <laughs> in the taxi there, and our taxi driver is an Israeli Arab. That did not help our situation at all. He gets out, and, and you know, they told us to pull over to the side, and of course, we've got all of these 18-year-old uh, IDF soldiers with Uzis standing around, and I'm thinking, this is not good. And so we're sitting in the taxi, and he gets up, and he starts shaking his fist and shouting, and I'm like, they're gonna shoot him dead, and then we won't even have a ride back to the hotel. And, and he's shouting at them, and they're shouting at him, and he goes walking over there, and, and this part of this is just how they're talking, you know. But to me as an American, not having any idea what they're saying, they're back and forth yelling at each other, pointing, pointing, you know, and, and, and of course they're holding their guns, and they keep pointing over at them. I'm like, don't point at me. And then the, our, our taxi driver motions me, says, come here. And so I start to get out of the taxi, because he told me to come there, and all the guns, turned on me, and I'm like, I'm just going to have a seat right here. Y'all figure this out. And finally, they call me over, and, and as they continue to argue, the, the, the Arab-Israeli taxi driver says, look, they're American. They're obviously Americans. Just ask him to talk. <laughs> and, and so they look at me expectantly like I'm supposed to say something, and I just went, how you doing? <laughs> and they went, all right, let them through. So we got to go back. You know, obviously, we, we survived the incident, but but going down to Hebron, and, and I, boy, you learn things. Why do we want to go to Hebron? Well, it's a biblical city of great value, and I knew something of it, and I wanted to see it. And we had this free time, and this Arab-Israeli taxi driver said, hey, I'll take you down, take you anywhere you want to go. So we went to Bethlehem, went to Hebron. It was, you know, fantastic. And we get down there, and I have never, ever felt unsafe in Israel except for that day. When we got out of the taxi at the cave of Machpelah, and that's the tiny little property that Abraham bought for himself. Though he was given the entire land, all he did was buy a burial cave. Genesis 23 tells the whole story. Goes to the sons of Heth, whose name means terror, <laughs> and he buys this little cave and this little plot right there, that's all, so that he could bury his wife, Sarah. I wanted to see the cave of Machpelah. Well, if you go, you see it, and I've talked about this a few times. It's, it's quite an edifice that they built up around it, and within that edifice, it's divided. Half belongs, half is a Muslim mosque, and the other half is a Jewish tomb. So it's, and the tension in Hebron is exactly what you would expect. You've got a, a half and half. You've got half angry, bitter Palestinians, angry for the lives that they're living and, and, and even how their own leadership treats them. And the other half is these fierce nationalistic Jews who are living on the West Bank outside of Israel proper, although it is Israel's territory as the Bible proves, but they're, they're living there to hold on to it. This is our land, you know? And, and so you've got this incredible 
tension, and right there in the middle of it is the cave of Machpelah. Cave of Machpelah, the Merat Ha Machpelah in Hebrew, which also means the cave of the double portion. And the longer story, there, there, below this edifice, there were some Israelis that snuck in and dug down and they discovered the burial tombs. They're down there and it's a double cave. So it is the cave of the double portion and it's down below and it is the family tomb of Abraham. And it's fascinating to me, stuff like this just like, whoa, Awesome. And so we're there and we're able to see it. We actually went up into the edifice and they have these kind of faux coffins there, you know, and, and of course my Arab taxi driver is saying, well, yeah, that's Abraham's tomb right there. And I'm like, it's not Abraham's down there. You know, it's not right there. But they've got all their cloths over it and, and you go on the Muslim mosque side, which we were allowed to actually go in and we looked at that and we saw it from that side. Then we went onto the Jewish side and we saw it from this side. But below is the family tomb. And in the family tomb is Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, not Rachel, who he loved more, but Leah actually gets to be buried next to Jacob. Rachel's buried over by Bethlehem. And finally, Joseph. Now, you may recall, Joseph died in Egypt. And, and he said before he died, take me up from here and bury me, bury me in my father's land and in my father's tomb and so there's going to be, in Joshua 24, we finally come to the burial of Joseph. And you'll see that when we get there. It's just one verse, but they take the bones of Joseph and they have a very special burial ceremony at the cave of Machpelah there in Hebron. And I think this is fascinating, and here's why. It was called Kiryat Arba, the city of the four. Not Anak, Shishai, Ahiman, Talmai, but these days, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the tomb of the four. What's beautiful about that to me is that God replaces the notorious, ugly giants with his people. He replaces the notorious with the redeemed, which is what he does in your life and he does in my life. He replaces that which is ugly and large and loud, that which is, you know, trying to make a name for itself, and he replaces that with his quietly redeemed people. I love the humility of Abraham who buys this little cave. I just need a place to bury my family. God will take care of the rest. That's the faith that Jake was talking about in Romans 4. The faith of Abraham who just trusted God to do what he would not see in his lifetime to do. Now there's something else I find even more intriguing. So as long as we're on this track with Kalev, something about him that's just Really cool to look at here, and, and we'll kind of close out where we're going with this. I know it doesn't look like we're far into the chapter. We actually are. But Kalev is a picture, I believe, of someone. Um, Joshua is obviously a Yehoshua, a picture of Jesus. And we've pointed that out and looked at that through the first half of our study of Joshua. He's a picture. Yehoshua ben Nun is a picture of Yehoshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Well, Caleb at least, at least hints at someone else, and I think we can make that application by implication. But look at verse 15. After he drove out these four sons, or three sons of Anak, verse 15, then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir formerly was Kiryat Sefer. That's the city of the book. And that's where he fought against the people uh, who 
who was formerly Kiryat Sefer. Verse 16, and Kalev said, the one who attacks Kiryat Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. You know what I love about Caleb? He's not just fighting himself. He's inviting others to fight with him. Come on, let's fight together. Whoever, I, I got this. Whoever wants to take care of that, you can have my daughter. I'm assuming Aksa was beautiful. That would help his case, okay? So you can have my daughter. He offers her up as a wife. Verse 17, Othniel, the son of Kanaz, the brother of Kalev. And we pointed out on Sunday, Kalev probably, Othniel is probably his stepbrother because he's son of Kanaz. And we know that Caleb is son of Hebron, or, or yeah, yeah, Hebron. Someone looked that up and checked me on that. So many names. Anyway, Othniel is probably his half-brother, okay? Brothers of a different father, same mother. Well, Othniel captured it, so he gave him, Oxa, his daughter, as a wife. And it came about that when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she alighted from the donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. Remember, the Negev is very dry, very deserty. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now listen, if you recall the name Othniel, you probably should. We're gonna come back to it in Judges chapter three. Othniel is the first of the judges of Israel. So he's gonna actually make a name for himself as the first deliverer that God works through to deliver the sons of Israel from their oppression in the book of Judges. So first judge, uh, Judges 3 verse 9, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's or Caleb's younger brother. So Caleb gives his, gives his daughter, this, this woman, Oxa, as wife to Othniel. But there's someone that Caleb, I think, portrays for us in this story. Think about Caleb for a moment. He and Joshua both fought together, or both spied together the land. Of the 12 spies, there were two men who came back with faith, right? Two men who came back to Moses and said, we got this. God's got this. He said, we can take it. We should take it. Let's go. Two men who had great faith, and yet Joshua is the one who gets elevated to leadership. Where's Caleb after that? You know, I mean, until he comes and says, hey, let me go fight for Hebron. What I love about Kalev is he's loyal to Joshua. We never hear him complain. We never see him disgruntled that he has to play second fiddle to Joshua. And it reminds me of someone. In John chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come and he will glorify me for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. And of course, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. Caleb was loyal to Joshua in the same way the Holy Spirit is loyal to Jesus. Understand that the Holy Spirit and Jesus have same authority, but different position. Same person, they're both God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all three, the triune God, and yet the Holy Spirit is content to be positionally the one who supports Jesus, who glorifies Jesus, who brings to mind all that Jesus taught. That's what this Spirit does. And we see here, Kalev, in the same way, what's he doing? He's working to continue Joshua's great commission. 
to continue the commission in the land. I got Hebron. Hey, anyone want to take Kyrgios affair? You do that, I'll give you my daughter. He's out there promoting the commission of Yehoshua in the same way that the Holy Spirit promotes the great commission of Jesus. Remember that Jesus called the Holy Spirit the parakleton, as we studied in John, the one who comes alongside. So the Holy Spirit continues Jesus' great commission today. What does he do? He restrains the giants of sin and deception. He is active in the fellowship, Hebron fellowship. He's active in the fellowship of believers, but there's more to it than, than just this. Note that Kalev gives away a bride. His daughter, Oxa, as, as a bride. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is to give away, to prepare and to give the bride, the church, to Jesus. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, and Jesus is always the bridegroom. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride, the church is always the bride, adorns herself with her jewels. It's interesting that the name oxa actually means anklet or ankle bracelet. So like the bride adorns herself with jewels. Revelation 19, seven, let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was, note this, given to her. And I always like to point that out. She didn't do this. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints which means that our righteousness and our righteous acts are given to us. Given to us to walk out. Given to us to perform. We don't generate righteousness. God does. We just have faith in him. And as he said to Joshua at the very outset of our study tonight, I'll go before you and drive it out. I'll drive them out before you. You just follow me. So we do that and, and it becomes for us fine linen of righteousness. Who empowers that in us? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. What is the power that is at work in, in, within you if not the very presence of the Holy Spirit? working out the fruit of the Spirit and the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. Titus 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in, in righteousness, but according to his mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So he's preparing the bride. He's working in us and through us. Finally, note this, in verses 18 and 19, what does Aksa, this daughter of Kalev, what does she ask of Kalev? Well, she asks for two things, a field and springs of water. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him shall become in him, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John chapter four, verse 14 by the way, I gotta tell you this side note. Cam was sharing with us today. She's into gardening. And she said she, she learned that some soil actually can become so dry, it becomes water phobic. I never heard this before. Maybe you gardeners, you know what she's talking about. 
that the soil itself becomes hardened and dry and water phobic. So when you pour water on it, it just will not allow it in. It just runs off the top and down the side and it's gone. But she said a gardener understands this, that water phobic soil can be enriched again, but it has to be soaked. You just gotta soak it. And you keep soaking it and keep soaking it and eventually it'll start to allow the water to come back in. Maybe you've experienced that in your life. You felt so dry that it was hard to even imagine the Holy Spirit working in you at all. You need to soak in the presence of God. Soak in his word. Soak in prayer. Be in the presence of other believers where you can receive that encouragement and that water-phobic soil of the heart can actually be softened again. Jesus said, I will give you Water that will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. But she didn't just ask for the spring. She asked for, she asked for a field. John 4, 35. Jesus said, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. So let me ask you two quick questions here. Have you asked God for a field? This, this really stopped me, literally stopped me dead in my study. The question came to me first, and then the personal reality came to me. Have I asked God for a field? We talk about evangelism, you know, and we talk about sharing the gospel, and we all know we're supposed to, right? I'm not saying that we all do all the time, but we're supposed to, part of the Great Commission, share the gospel. Okay, but then we get stuck in that place of, who do I share with? Where do I go to share? I don't know. And we kind of get stuck right there. I would suggest that we all start off by going, God, give me a field. Lord, would you just give me a field that I can go and work in? I mean, if we were working in an actual harvest, we would go to the, you know, whoever was in charge, and we'd say, where do you need me? Go out there to that part of the orchard. Go out there to that part of the wheat field, and, and that's where I need you to work. Ask God for a field. That's what the bride does. She asks for a field. And Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And it's really hard to pray that if you're not praying it about yourself. You know, oh Lord, send that guy. <laughs> no, send me. Here I am, Isaiah said, send me. Have you asked God for a field? And have you asked God for springs, both upper and lower, both for baptism and, I'm going to say it again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have you asked him for that? You know, for me, as a strict non-Pentecostal growing up, that was not a prayer that I was about to pray until I came to Luke eleven thirteen, where Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I'll tell you something, for the first time in my life, after hearing that verse, I started to think, you know what? If, if the father gives me a spirit, I'm all for it. I, I, don't, I don't want some man-made version I don't want some freaky thing that someone's made up over here. I don't want something that is, that is an illusion, something that's not the genuine article. But you know what? If Jesus says, ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, well, that I can do. Because I know God's not gonna tweak me. 
I know he's not gonna give me something that's gonna freak me out. I know if I'm asking him for his spirit and if I'm praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit as Jesus said, well, that's, that's, a, that's a totally different thing. That I can receive. Now, I'm probably a little more Pentecostal leaning these days than I used to be. Thank you, Les. <laughs> but it all started for me when I said, you know what, I'm not gonna be afraid of what God has for me. I'm not sure still about some of the stuff that man does with the Holy Spirit. But I'm not afraid with what the Lord has for me, the authentic truth of his spirit, the upper and lower springs and the field. This is what the bride asks for. So I ask you again, as the bride of Christ, are you asking for the field? And are you asking for the upper and the lower springs. Now, we return to the rest of the borders of Judah's land, to the east and to the north. Corey, you can put the slide back up one more time so you guys can follow it through. I'm just gonna read it down. Hold on to your Bible belts, verse 20, and we're just gonna rip through this. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the sons of Judah according to their families. The cities at the extremity of the tribe of the sons of Judah toward the border of Edom, that's gonna be on the eastern side, uh, southeastern to the south, were Kabzeel and Adair and Jagur and Kina and Demona and Adada, <laughs> it was a great name, Adada, and Kadesh and Hatzor and Ifnan, Zif and Telim and Baalot, Hatzar, Hadata, and Keriot, Hezron, that's Hatzor, Amon, Shema, Molada, and Hatzar Gada and Heshmon and Betpalet, and Hatzar Shul and Beersheba and Bitsodiah. Biziothiah, Biziothiah, Beala and and Eim and Azim and Eltolad and Kassel and Horma and Ziklag and Madmana and Sasana and speaking of being Pentecostal, it sounds like I'm speaking in tongues and Leboat and Shilhim and Ain and Ramon. In all, 29 cities in their villages. In the lowland, Eshtiel, Zora, Asna, and Zonah, and Enganim, Tapua, Enam, Jarmuth, and Adulam, Soko, and Azekah, Sha'ariam, Sha'araim, and Aditaim, and Gadira, and Gadirotaim, 14 cities with their villages. Zinan, Hadashah, Migdal, Gad, Dilian, Mizpah, and Jachnil, Lakish, Bozkat, Eglon, and Kabon, and Lamas, and Chitlish, and Gederot, Bet-Dagon, Neama, Makeda, 16 cities with their villages, Wow, Libna, and Ether, and Ashan, and Ifta, and Asna, and Nazib, and Kila, and Agzim, or Agzib, Marasha, nine cities with their villages, Ekron with its town and its villages, and Ekron even to the sea all that were by the side of Ashdod with their villages. So interesting that Ashdod is still a city in Israel today. You know, that names that far back, same place, same location, still there. Ashdod with their villages. Ashdod and its towns and villages. Gaza, its towns and its villages, same place, same location today as far as the Brook of Egypt to the Great Sea, even its coastline. And all that, what is called Gaza today, that is in the hands of the Philistines, or the Palestinians, not the Philistines, they're not Philistines. The hands of the Palestinians today is in the title deed of Israel. This is Israel's land. Regardless of all politics, this is Israel's land. God said so. 
in the hill country, verse 48, Shamir and Jatir and Sokat and Danah and Kiryat Sana, that is Debir, and Anab and Eshtemo and Anim and Goshen and Holon and Gilo, 11 cities with their villages, Arab and Duma and Eshan, Janum, Beth Tapua, Afeka, Humta, Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, and Zior, nine cities with their villages, Maon, Carmel, Zif, Juta, and Jezreel, and Joktim, or Yoktim, Zanoa, Cain, Gebiah, Timna, ten cities with their villages, Halhul, Betzur, Gedor, Me'arat, Bet Anot, Eltakon, six cities with their villages, Kiryat Baal, that's Kiryat Jerim, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages, in the wilderness, Bet Araba, Medin, Sakaka, Nibshan, and the city of Salt, and Engedi, six cities with their villages. Thank you. Okay, so <laughs> run down the list. Now, I, you know why all those names? Why do we need to read through all that stuff? Listen, God is faithful. God is faithful. He meticulously, specifically lays all of this out for the people of Israel then, and I think for the world today. Look, this was the title deed that God handed to Judah and to nobody else, and it belongs to Judah. This area, along with Benjamin, is going to become the southern kingdom of Judah, as I said earlier, when Israel divides. It's called Judea by the time that Jesus comes on the scenes and walks its rolling hills, and they are beautiful rolling hills, and he walks the stony streets of Jerusalem. And if you count it all up, all of these verses down through verse 62, you get to 122 total cities that are given to Judah in this region but they had trouble with just one, verse 63. Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. There's a wall in Jerusalem down by the city of David they call the Jebusite Wall. It dates back 4,000 years. And you can see it, it's, it's still there. By the way, did I tell you we're going to Israel in May? Anyone who'd like to join us, just talk to me. So the Jebusites lived there, and for five centuries, they would hold Jerusalem. Five centuries. Judah, look at the size of Judah. And that's not just land. Judah was a big tribe, and they could not take Jebus. They could not take Jerusalem for 500 years until David finally comes along and comes up with a way to get inside the city, and it's a great story. But he comes along, and, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, finally becomes the rightful inheritance by title and deed of Judah. Why? Because God never forgets a promise. And it may take 500 years, but God's gonna get it done, even if we don't, because faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Final thought with this tonight, and you guys have done great. Just as Israel could not drive out the Jebusites, you cannot sanctify yourself entirely. You can't do it. You can try as you might. You can try to be spiritual. You can try to do the, the right thing. You can try to keep 
biblical law and morality and values, but you cannot sanctify yourself entirely or blamelessly until the son of David, Jesus Christ, fully conquers your heart. Until he comes in and then, then your real estate is with Jesus, the faithful God. And then your real estate is yours for the asking. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for a total and complete conquering of our hearts. That there wouldn't be, like for those five centuries, a little spot, a little Jebus in the heart, a little Jerusalem that belongs to you, Lord, where you want to put your name. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will put your name in the ruling capital of each of our hearts. That we would be a conquered people, conquered by your spirit, conquered by faith in you, conquered by simple trust that you are faithful to all that you promise, that you will see us through. And that, Lord, all we need do is believe in he whom you have sent. Believe in Jesus. I thank you for your word to us. I thank you for your faithfulness. And we, we praise you for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.